In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I am happy to be with you here in UTA, and I received plenty of your questions. I will try actually to answer most of these questions. The first one, does the Coptic Church believe that the story of Adam and Eve is historically accurate, meaning that the entire world was populated by just the two of them. While I understand the symbolic ideas behind it, I struggle to reconcile the historicity of the story with scientific ideas, such as the pure the poor genetic outcomes of inbreeding. I believe that we don't take the story of the seven days of creation literally, but I am unsure of our thoughts on the story of Adam and Eve. So this question is about whether the story of Adam and Eve just mythology or a literally real story. There was a person named Adam and a person named Eve. And the difficulty here, how to reconcile this with the scientific ideas, for example, as the poor genetic outcomes of inbreeding, that's the example that he gave. And then he said, that we don't take the story of the seven days of creation literally. So I'm going to respond to all of this. Uh, Actually, in order, uh, we believe in the infallibility and also in the authority of the scripture. So let us first in in trying to answer this question, try to see what are the problems that will face us if we believe that the story of Adam and Eve is just a symbolic or a myth, not literal story. But let me explain first how they explain it. They are saying there is some truth in the story, but the author of the book of Genesis, Moses, he tried to write it in a symbolic way to answer some question, like the question of sin, how sin entered in the world, the question of uh, how woman was created uh, or existed, etc. So they say it is true or it is a fact, but there is symbolism. And they say, for example, the word Adam means earth, dust. Uh, And the Garden of Eden, Eden means delight, Garden means paradise. So Garden of Eden just is a symbol of the paradise of joy. And since the paradise of joy, as St. Paul said, is third heaven, then the idea of the garden is just a symbolic. 
So, in a way, this story may be not literally accurate, although the message behind it is accurate. That's what they are trying to say. But, actually, we have a very, very big problem in accepting this. Because if we accept this, actually, there are many challenges. In in Luke chapter 3, when the Saint Luke mentions the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and he started by Jesus, son of uh, Haley, son of, son of, until he reached son of Sheth, son of Adam. So, if Adam is just a symbolic uh, uh, to the earth we were created from dust of earth but no one existed his name is Adam then this genealogy is fake it's not true Okay. also in Romans chapter 5 and verse 14 St. Paul says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him, Christ, who was to come. So, here St. Paul is speaking about Adam as a real person. Again, I'm not going to read all the verses because it's going to take... But he mentioned Adam again as a real person in 1 Corinthians 15.22. He mentioned Adam as a real person in 1 Corinthians 15.4. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, he said, Adam was created first, then Eve. He's speaking about real people. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, he said, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and she fell in transgression. So, actually, if I'm going to believe that the story of Adam and Eve is not real, this means the New Testament is not real. This means the whole Christianity is, is just a fake, is a mythology. It is not... A, a true religion, then actually we are deceived and we are following just a false religion. Uh, somebody made a story and we're just following this story. Ad- St. Paul actually uh, told us some spiritual uh, and dogmatic facts. Adam is the first one created by God, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. The sin, uh, sorry, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even the Lord Jesus Christ referred to Adam in in uh, in Matthew 19 verse 5. He said, "From the beginning, God created them male and female. That's why a man leaves his 
father and mother and be cleaved to his wife. And this verse that the Lord used, actually it is written in Genesis. The same verse written in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about the fall of Adam and Eve in John chapter 8, verse 44. Let me read it. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and a father of it. So he's speaking here, he was a liar from the beginning, and he was a murderer from the beginning. Which beginning the Lord referring here? You know, how he actually lied to Adam and Eve and how he made actually uh, Cain to kill um, Abel. Uh, also, when uh, the Lord spoke about Abel, when he told the, the Pharisees, every innocent blood will come upon you from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And you can read it in Luke chapter 11, verse 51. So, blood of Abel, if Adam and Eve not real, then Abel is not real. But the Lord actually, Jesus Christ, mentioned uh, Abel. And in Hebrew chapter 11, St. Paul spoke about Abel one of the heroes of faith. He spoke about uh, the blood of Abel, the blood of Jesus Christ, speaks far better than the blood of Abel. So, many, many actually uh, references uh, in the scripture to tell us that the story of Adam and Eve uh, is a real story. Uh, So, Christians who deny the story of Adam and Eve essentially deny their own faith. Rejecting the literal interpretation of the historical events in the Bible is a slippery slope. If Adam and Eve did not exist, then Cain and Abel are not real, then Seth did not exist, then actually everything in the Bible uh, is false. What about the scientific ideas that he mentioned, the poor genetic outcome of inbreeding? When you study the inbreeding, there is something called inbreeding depression. Inbreeding depression. What's the definition of inbreeding depression? Inbreeding depression is the reduced biological fitness in a given population as a result of inbreeding or breeding of related individuals. So when related people marry to each other, then actually the, there will be reduced biological fitness in the following generation. 
And we can imagine Adam and Eve, then their children start to marry uh, their siblings. So that's very related to each other. So this actually uh, created the, the, the different uh, races and also it explained actually the, the, the story of Adam and Eve support, support the poor genetic outcomes of inbreeding does not contradict. يعني the person who sent the question he say it contradicts actually the story of Adam and Eve in reality support the poor genetic outcome of inbreeding. Again, inbreeding depression, it says, population biological fitness refers to an organism's ability to survive and perpetuate its genetic material. Inbreeding depression is often the result of a population bottleneck. In general, the higher the genetic variation or gene pool within a breeding population, the less likely it will suffer from inbreeding depression. That's why here in America, they don't encourage, for example, uh, marriage between cousins in order uh, to uh, make the, the possibility of inbreeding depression low. But during Adam and Eve, they were marrying siblings and, and cousins and relatives, you know. That's why the inbreeding depression uh, yeah, exists. Let me answer another point about the six days of creation. What is the definition of a day right now? Day as 24 hours is actually the movement of the earth around itself and the movement of the earth around the sun. So the earth moves around itself in 24 hours and moves around the sun in 365 days and six hours. That's why six hours accumulate one day in the leap year. And if you want to be more accurate, minus 11 minutes and 32 seconds. <laughs> and that is a Gregorian uh, adjustment to the calendar. So, uh, when, when the sun was created in the fourth day, so what does this mean? This means the word day doesn't mean 24 hours because the sun was created in the fourth day. So the day actually can be million and million and millions of, even I don't know, I don't want to use the word years because years did not exist. Whatever, uh, how, how they calculated time at the, يعني, before the creation of sun. So it can be very, very long uh, period of time. And church father said, God created the world in six days. Now we are living in the seventh day. That's why you read after the six days, there was evening and morning of first day, evening, morning, second day. But when it comes to the six, seven days, it was mentioned evening and morning of seventh day. 
So now we are living in the seventh day. Second coming of Christ will be the end of seventh day and the beginning of the eighth day, which is the eternity. And as you know, number eight represents resurrection. So that is the eighth day. So now actually we are living in the seventh day for almost 7,000 years from Adam until now. So when somebody tell me they found a bone or whatever millions of years, doesn't check my faith because the animals, the high vertebrae was created you know, in the sixth day. So this will not check my faith because as, as I told you, we don't know how this period of time equal in our definition of day right now. It can equal million and million and million of years. And by the way, they tried to say the first bone of a human being. They never actually proved they found a human being bone dated more than the 70. All, all what they found it is just assumption. But you know, the high vertebrae, uh, like the high uh, types of, of monks, their skeleton uh, is very similar to our skeleton. But they cannot actually determine 100% whether this belongs to a monkey or belongs to uh, a human being. And there is no one single evidence. They say it is 100% belong to a human being. So, uh, that is the six days of, uh, of creation. Uh, second question, can people in heaven see us? Definitely. How can we ask the intercession of St. Mary or Bob Krollos or St. Mark? Or, because they, they see us and we communicate with them and they communicate with us. Once the spirit is released from the body, uh, the spirit has abilities more than when it is in the body. So they can see, they can communicate, they can go from one place to another place. Uh, definitely their abilities is far and beyond our abilities. So yes, they can see us. Uh, for example, the story of Lazarus and the uh, rich man, and many church fathers say it is a real story, not a parable. So in this story, the rich man felt how his brothers are away from their faith. And he asked Abraham to send Lazarus to, to, to preach to them. So this means those in heaven see us and, and, and know يعني, how we are doing here. Third question, how can I live a life of true repentance? Uh, I will answer it quickly. Repentance has six steps. Number one, the acknowledgement that I am a sinner. Number two, godly uh, sorrow, to develop godly sorrow, as St. Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Number three, determination that I will do whatever it takes in order to fight this sin. I have fought the good fight. 
Number four, correction of the outcome of sin. Of course, as much as I can. And if I killed somebody, I cannot raise him from dead. But if I steal money, I, I can restore the money. Number five, which is very important, have confidence and trust that God will forgive me and will accept me. Because Satan will try to tell you God hates you, God doesn't like you, God will not accept you. Number six, sacrament of confession and sacrament of communion. So before actually confession and communion, I should go through these five steps. To admit I am a sinner, develop godly sorrow, to determine and decide I will do whatever it takes not to fall in sin again through the grace of God, uh, correct the consequences of my sins, have confidence in God. But as I said, one of the best books about repentance is the book of His Holiness Pope uh, Shenouda, A Life of Repentance and Purity. And uh, uh, there is a new translation uh, done by His Grace Bishop Surya. It's beautiful translation. And for the English reader, it's one of the beautiful translations. With the new abortion law, how can you approach the conversation with non-believers when it comes up, especially the topic of carrying a child that was conceived from rape? And also there is another uh, question related to this. Uh, can a woman get an abortion if she is raped? Uh, you cannot justify one sin by another sin. Or you cannot correct one sin by another sin. So you cannot correct rape by uh, murder. But statistics, and go and check it, the possibility of getting pregnant from a rape is a very, very, very uh, little. But <laughs> having said this, now I see the definition of rape is... Uh, It's just a false definition. Let me tell you what I mean by a false definition. For example, a girl goes with her boyfriend to his house, alone, nobody else, and then start drinking together. And then both of them got drunk. And at the end, he slept with her. Then when she woke up, she says, he raped me because he did not take my consent. But what she is expecting to go with a boy alone and then start drinking together, are, uh, is she expecting after this he's going to do midnight praises? <laughs> so... so I personally don't agree this is called rape. 
I, I put myself. Yeah, the consent is very important. I, but th- there is no consent actually outside marriage. And and if I have boy and girl together, both of them are drunk, even if not drunk, temptation is there. In in the book of uh, Proverbs, who can take uh, fire into his bosom and will not be uh, burned? So, is there any pregnancy can uh, can happen, or can pregnancy happen from what is called rape here? Yes, it can happen. And actually, in this situation, definitely abortion is wrong, because this will encourage sexual immorality. I can get pregnant, and then I, I have abortion with the permission from the church. But rape means the took one against her own will and they forced themselves on, on her. You know, to, to be pregnant, the, the person has to be in a condition allows this. So statistics, and go and check it, from rape with the right definition is very, very little. But even if it happens, you know, this child is if unwanted pregnancy, can be taken and can many many families want to adopt children can be put in a foster home uh, in a Christian foster home. But I cannot justify killing somebody because his mother uh, was raped. There's yeah two two wrongs doesn't make it right. It's a sin. Abortion is a sin of murder. Abortion is a sin. Of murder. Who the Kushite woman Moses is married to in number 12. In Exodus, he is married to Zipporah and she is Midianite. Midianite. Did Moses have multiple wives? There are many, actually, opinions about this, but I will give you the two opinions, and I tell you what we as a church believe in. There is actually, first opinion say, the Kushite is the same like Zipporah. They are not two different persons, and they said she was called the Kushite not because she was from Kush, which is Ethiopia, but because she was dark in color. But this story actually the, the, the church does not support it because why Miriam and Aaron get upset with Moses after he was married to this woman for 40 years. So it doesn't make sense, and all those who try to support or say she is the same woman, no. So, the Kushite is different person, most probably she is from Ethiopia, different person from the uh, Zipporah, the Midianite. 
And there are many stories how Moses married her. Of course, we don't have any biblical evidence or any patristic evidence which story is right. But let me tell you some stories. All these stories are actually from the Jewish tradition. You know, there are many schools in the Jewish tradition, so they have different stories. So, for example, the Midrash, they say when Moses fled from uh, Pharaoh, he fled to Ethiopia, which is south of Egypt. And there he married, uh, the king of Ethiopia died, and he married uh, his wife, the queen of Ethiopia. And they say that Moses uh, became the queen of, uh, sorry, the, the king of Cush for 40 years. And then he went to Midian. It's a, of course, I'm just tell, uh, right to tell you what the, their tradition says. But of course, the right answer, we don't know why or how Moses married this Cushite woman. Then the question that comes, why Miriam got angry or mad with Moses and why God defended Moses? And many people, when they read it, also the Bible doesn't give an explanation why she was upset with him. But many people, when they read it, they read it because she was dark in color. So as if Miriam and Aaron were racist, that's why they were against. But the most accurate uh, tradition, why she was angry with him, not because of her color, but they say because Miriam was very jealous from the Kushite woman. She was very influential on Moses. If we take the story, she was the queen of, uh, of Ethiopia. So she was very influential on Moses, and that's why she was jealous. There is another story says, that Moses was not attractive to her, so he separated her. So he did not actually uh, took her as a wife, lived with her as a wife. So Miriam was upset because Moses abandoned her. So she was defending her, not upset that Moses married her uh, because of her color. Definitely we don't know the real reason. Uh, another uh, explanation, they said, according to the, I think, Targum, they said that a prophet should not actually have married a relationship with, with, with his wife. So she was upset. But God actually defended Moses because marrying the Kushite woman has a symbolic meaning, which is the acceptance of the Gentile. If Moses represents the old covenant, 
So marrying the Kushite means there is acceptance of the Gentiles. Then in the new covenant, Jesus came as a bridegroom, not only to choose his bride from Israel, but also from uh, the Gentiles. But yani, the, the short answer, no, she is not the Zipporah, the Midianite. She is not. She is a different woman. And all the stories that I shared with you, we don't know which one is true, but all these different traditions, like Talmud, Targum, uh, Midrash, different, Midrash uh, like Madrasa in Arabic, uh, school. So these are different traditions, but nobody knows which is the true explanation. But what we know for sure, she is different. And uh, different from Zipporah, and God defended Moses because this marriage was a prophecy about accepting the Gentiles to be the bride of Christ. Clear? Do we look at Ethiopians as being Gentiles, like now? Now, no. But Gentiles means non-Israelites. The Egyptians are Gentiles, the Americans are Gentiles, right. the Ethiopians are Gentiles. But I the Ethiopians came into the faith through Judaism. Like, so, is that not accurate? No, how they came to faith through Judaism. I thought that Ethiopia had been um, Judaized, evangelized. And that's why they don't eat shellfish, I thought. Y'all, help me out. They have a lot of culture that is, like, very, very <laughs> Jewish in its practices. As far as I understand, there are even people who say they still have animal sacrifices. You know, the first one from Ethiopia believed in Christ is the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And when he went to Ethiopia, he started to speak about Christ, but he did not establish Christianity there. Christianity was established there by Ephromentius in the 4th century when St. Athanasius sent him to Ethiopia. He was like a man of business and doing trades. And he was ordained as the first uh, bishop uh, for Ethiopia by St. Ascensions. I think you have the same tradition, right? Same story, yes. So, uh, Frumentius is the the first... uh, but I, I never heard that uh, they were Judaizers or, or believed in Judaism. But even if they believed in Judaism, even, as long as they are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they called Gentiles or proselyte. Okay, so it's a physical... Yes. For, for them, the Jewish, you have to be descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why there are proselytes. Proselyte means people who joined. So even the Ethiopian, some of them joined, uh, they were considered proselyte, but they are considered Gentiles. Can I ask a follow-up question? That is only related because I multiple sclerosis. Yeah. When we pray the crowning ceremony, do we highlight Rachel and Leah, the marriage between Rachel and with that's confusing to me always. Why yes, yes. I, I agree. 
and that's why I think the Holy Synod actually corrected who blessed Jacob in his marriage. But we need to correct it in Coptic reader. And when I attend actually a wedding and I pray, I corrected on the spot, but I, I forget to contact Kapurita to send them to connect. That's Holy Synod correct. All of us, we believe that both marriages were okay because he loved Rachel and from Rachel came Joseph. But if you see, Christ did not came from the descendant of Rachel. God came from Leah, Jude, because Leah is the first wife. God did not come from Rachel. If God came, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ came from Rachel, this would be a very question mark about polygamy. Um, so, in the Old Testament, the word blessing means from their seed Christ will come. So, we can say the, the, the marriage with Leah was the blessed marriage because Christ came from this seed. Okay. Thank you. But because the story of Joseph and Rachel is a touchy story, that's why <laughs> many believe it is. What steps should I take to help me stop uh, cursing? I have tried for the past few years to stop, but I am making no progress. Uh, Cursing, one of the sins that become a habit. And actually, there is, I have a sermon, how to overcome habitual and beloved sins. There are sins that we love and we are not willing to give it up. And also there are sins maybe we don't love like cursing, but it becomes habit. So there are some some exercises that you need to do in order to overcome this sin. So I hope you can uh, look for this sermon and, and you hear it it's in English. But I like to give a quick answer as I told you. Number one, you cannot overcome any habit without actually the grace of God. So you need actually to pray and ask the grace of God every morning, every morning. When you wake up, ask God to help you to overcome this sin. Number two, any habit, in order to overcome it, you need accountability. That's why people who are addicts like alcoholism one of the most successful is a support group in which they hold the, the person accountable, like Alcohol Anonymous, Narcotic Anonymous. This actually proved to be very successful. So you need to have accountability partner, and the best accountability partner is your spiritual father. Uh, and you need actually to agree together how he can hold you accountable. And with accountability comes responsibility and support. So the support, the accountability partner, who should be your father of confession, your spiritual father, should support you in prayer, support you by giving you hope that you can overcome, support you when he encourage you when you spend like one or two or three days without uh, 
cursing, etc. But responsibility means uh, if you curse somebody, you need to go and apologize. So if you go and apologize every time to the person whom you cursed, then actually uh, you will. This will help you to get rid of this sin. What about if you curse in your uh, thoughts? Or, for example, you are driving your car and you curse somebody who did not hear you. Here you need to apologize to God in the presence of your accountability partner. So, responsibility, accountability, support, and above all the grace of God, this will help you to overcome any habitual sin like cursing. But there are other things I mentioned in the sermon, so just for our time, go and, and hear this sermon. It's good about how to overcome habitual sins. Is it on SoundCloud? Yes. Yeah, yeah, just write habitual sin, his grace Bishop Yusuf, and you'll find it. I know that Christ loved the scribes and the Pharisees. But did Christ like the Pharisees and the scribes? <laughs> the implication of the answer of the question for us is while I'm required to love everyone indeed, meaning by my actions, am I required to like everyone? I think the question here is about the emotions and the mind. I can make a decision by my mind to love someone means, as he wrote it correctly, by my actions to show him love. If your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. But what he doesn't know, that when I love by actions, faithfully and sincerely, and God see my faithfulness, God will process this love from here to here. Then I will develop the likeness. So the likeness will be a natural fruit of being faithful in showing love to my enemies. Even in counseling, in marriage counseling, if somebody said, you know, I have no emotions toward my wife or I have no emotion toward my husband. It died. We advise them to start doing the work of love. And when actually continue to do the work of love, it will be processed from here to here. And actually, there is a Christian group made a a very, very beautiful movie about this principle. It's called Fireproof. If you did not watch it, I encourage you to watch it. It's a Christian movie about marriage. How the couple were almost on the verge of divorce. Then the father gave his son advice and he told him, do the works of love to your wife for 40 days. And if nothing happened, go and divorce her. So he started, and he was struggling, because even she was not receiving the works of love with appreciation. But, you know, at the middle of the 
40 days he was frustrated, went to his father, but his father encouraged again, again him to continue. So he started to continue. And gradually, the feeling of love and the emotions of love start to grow in his heart. Maybe you can tell me, that's a movie. But no, it is reality. Many people who actually experienced uh, the true love in action ended up by their emotions start to uh, love the other person. And uh, the nice thing, do, do you know when she responded to him on which day? If she did not watch the movie. Can, can you guess when she started to respond to his love? Any guessing? 39. 40. 39. No. Actually, she responded to his love in the day 47 or 48, something like this. So the message here, once you love, you will not stop at 40. You will continue. Which is actually a beautiful message in, in, in this movie. Uh, how would you restore your internal peace? You need to see what is the reason you lost your internal peace. Person can lose internal peace because of sin, because of stress, worrying, conflict, lack of forgiving spirit, uh, away from God. So you need to see what are the reasons. And then correct the reason, then the peace will come back. One of the beautiful verses about restoring peace in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. And it says, don't be anxious over anything. I mean, don't worry. Don't be anxious over anything. But in anything you are worried about, through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So instead of worrying, just pray to the Lord. If you are worrying about your finals, your study, just pray. And study, <laughs> prayer order, <laughs> you know. And then what is the outcome? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your heart and mind in Jesus Christ. Why heart and mind? When a person is anxious, you say, I, I have a tightness here. And headache, I cannot sleep. So the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. If it has been years and I have been praying for something to happen and it still hasn't, should I take this as a no and accept that it will never happen? Uh, I cannot give a general answer to this. Because when Elizabeth and Zachariah prayed, God answered them maybe after 50 or 60 years. And I can imagine they got married in their 20s. 
and they had uh, John the Baptist in their 80s or 90s. So, if it did not happen, doesn't mean necessarily God is saying no. Because God, when he answers a prayer, he say yes or no or not now. So yes, you will get it. But no or not now, uh, you, you will not find something immediate. But the good news is, even if you stop praying about it, God, if, if the answer is not now, God will give it to you. Because Zachariah and Elizabeth definitely they stopped praying about uh, a child. Even Elizabeth did not believe, Zachariah did not believe. But since they prayed, God actually answered and told them, in the fullness of time, I will give you John the Baptist. So if you are not sure it is no from God, you can keep praying. But even if you stopped praying, don't worry. In the fullness of time, God will give you the answer to your prayer. What are the Coptic Orthodox teaching on purgatory? Purgatory, it says that they classify the people into three groups. People very, 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 very holy, like St. Mary, St. Peter, they don't need purgatory. And very people are very, 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 very sinful, like Judas Iscariot, they will go to hell. But the majority of the people, like all of us, Sometimes we are godly, sometimes we are not. So they say we need to be purged in purgatory. We'll spend some time in purgatory based on your sins. And then you will go to the paradise. There is no biblical, one biblical reference to this. And the biblical reference that they are using, like First Corinthians chapter three, it's not about purgatory. Uh, let me for, give you, for example, uh, explain because they are taking many references, like Book of Maccabees. But again, the best book to read it is uh, about purgatory uh, by Pope Shenouda, and it's available in English and Arabic. Purgatory by Pope Shenouda. First Corinthians chapter 3, it says there is no foundation except Jesus Christ. And then everyone in ministry will build on this foundation. Some people who are fervent in spirit, they, they build precious stones on this foundation. Some lazy ministers or servant, their building will be like uh, wood or hay. So when a day of trial comes, if me as a minister built precious stone, gold, silver, it will be purified. So the day of, of trial will actually make these people or this ministry more glorious. But if I build wood or hay, the day of trial will burn it. But what about the minister himself, the servant himself? St. Paul said, but he will be saved as of fire. So he said, as of fire, then purgatory. No, he's saying, you know, he, he was not faithful in his ministry. He did it with laziness. But if he repented, 
you know. So when he said as a fire, doesn't mean purgatory, but it means it will not be uneasy for a lazy servant to to be saved. But still there is hope if he become zealous and repented through repentance, he will be saved. Okay. Why you are against purgatory? Because besides there is no biblical reference. And all the biblical references they are using, they are misinterpreted. Uh, number two, this means the blood of Jesus Christ is not enough. We read in the scripture, blood of Jesus Christ purify or purge us from all sins. So how can I need fire to purge me from my sins? So this is again is the salvation. It is the atonement and the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if anyone needs purgatory, I think the thief on the cross needed purgatory. But the Lord told him what? Today you will be with me where? In paradise. He didn't tell him, we will send you to purgatory to spend some years to be purged from your sins and then you will come with me to the paradise. So, it's not biblical. <laughs> and uh, Pope Shenouda used to laugh about it and say, in orthodoxy, when you die, you will go directly to uh, the paradise. But in Catholicism, they will send you first to fire, <laughs> to be tortured, <laughs> and then you will go to uh, paradise. Which one you like to choose? <laughs> <laughs> During the Pentecost, were any disciples sent to undiscovered territories of the world like North America? No. (laughs) Definitely not. During Pentecost, were any disciples sent to undiscovered territory of the world like North America? For example, Peter went to to Brazil and Paul went to (laughs) Canada. If angels cannot commit a sin, then how did Satan become prideful? Before answering this question, I like to explain word mentioned in Second Timothy chapter four verse eight. When Saint Paul said, "I have fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith," finally, the Lord put on me the crown of righteousness which God will give me in that day. So what is the crown of righteousness? What is the crown of righteousness? What does it mean to be crowned with righteousness? The meaning we will live in a continuous righteousness. We will not sin again. Our relationship with sin will end. So the angels, when they were created, they went through tests because of their free will. 
And free will means to choose to do what's right or what's wrong. Some of them, led by Lucifer, they rebelled against God. So they fell. The others who refused to follow Lucifer, they were crowned with the crown of righteousness. Meaning, they cannot sin right now. But this doesn't mean uh, they don't have free will. No, they still have free will. But their will only choose what's right. That is the meaning of the uh, crown of righteousness. So this freedom that the angels have, or the free will that they have, and the freedom that we will have in eternity, that's what St. Paul mentioned in Romans 8.21, the liberty of the glory of the children of God. What is the liberty of the glory of the children of God? You are, you have free will, but with your free will, you will choose only what is right. So that's why uh, the angels cannot sin now. But this was not the situation from the beginning. They cannot sin now because they were crowned with the crown of righteousness. But before this, they were not crowned with the crown of righteousness. Uh, I have a friend who is interested in orthodoxy. But we lost the touch during the pandemic. And now he is really into exploring his sexuality. He thinks he is into the same sex. I am seeing him again soon, but I am worried. I don't know what I am going to say when he asks me how the Orthodox Church feels about gay people without turning him away and me appearing as a big. How should I go about this? It is not about how the Orthodox Church feels about gay. It's not about this. It's about what God revealed to us in the scripture. If we believe that scripture is infallible, and we believe that scripture is inspired, then the scripture has authority. So whatever the scripture is telling us, we should follow. Otherwise, we'll be against God. We'll be rebelling against God. So, I think this should be addressed. Number one, do believe in the authority of the scripture. Are we willing to obey God? who revealed himself in the scripture. Then you should have answer for the misinterpretation of some verses in the scripture. And there are many answers actually. Then if this person actually is into same sex and now he realized 
that it is against the will of God, we need to show him love, support, and acceptance to lead him to repentance. We we differentiate between people who say about sin, righteousness. And people who say about darkness, it is light. And people who know that this is a sin, but they are struggling with The first group, I cannot support their ideology. I cannot confirm that darkness is light. I cannot. But this group, they know already it's sin, and maybe they are struggling, as our brother who's struggling with the cursing. So it's a struggle. Person struggling with lying, person struggling with cursing, you know. So part of overcoming this struggle is to show them support, love, and acceptance in order to overcome the sin. So I'm accepting the person, not the sin. And it's our responsibility to actually show them how the grace of God can work in them, empower them, transform their life, and change their life. You need to give them this hope. How does the church say about Lilith? Do you know Lilith? Who knows about it? Is that like Adam's first wife according to according like some sort of mythology? Yeah, the, according to some apocryphal book, yeah. book called Adam and Eve. But that's not a canonical book, yeah. Does she exist? Okay. So, who is Lilith? There are legends that say Adam had a wife before Eve, whose name Lilith. But this is not found in the Bible. And this legend vary from one tradition to another tradition. But all essentially agree that Lilith left Adam because she did not want to submit to him. And according to the legend, Lilith was a wicked, evil woman who committed adultery with Satan and produced a race of evil creatures. Of course, none of this is true. But this legend. There is no biblical basis whatsoever for these concepts. So there is no one in the Bible named Lilith. But the passage most often pointed to as evidence of Lilith in the Bible is Isaiah 34, verse 14, which actually in <coughs> New Revised Standard Version, you read in Isaiah 34:14, there too Lilith shall repose. But this is a poor translation. Every other major translation of the Bible reads something to the effect of night creature. So the, the Hebrew word is translated most of the different versions of the Bible, night creatures, or 
screech all only new RSV new revised standard version translated as Lilith but even if demon monster named the Lilith and this was a proper translation of the Hebrew word but Adam is nowhere even hinted at this passage or in this context so whatever Lilith is there is no con- connection whatsoever to Adam or to creation. Uh, another also commonly used support for Lilith is the different creation stories or accounts in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So in chapter 1, when God created the woman, so they say this was Lilith. And in chapter 2, in Genesis, this was Eve. Of course, <laughs> there is no evidence. Uh, and Genesis chapter 2, according to all church fathers, is a closer look at the creation of Adam and Eve recorded in chapter 1. So chapter 1 is just a summary, and then he spoke in detail in chapter 2. And the Bible specifically says that Adam and Eve were the first human being ever created. You can read this in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 15. So, uh, this Lilith myth is popular in some radical feminist movement. Because Lilith is an example of a woman refusing to submit to male hatred. And while there are myths outside the word of God regarding Lilith, her complete absence from scripture demonstrates that she is nothing more than a myth. Why are all women punished for Eve's mistake? Painful pregnancy and painful periods. All men are punished also with Adam. But why? Because we were in Adam. We were in Adam. That's why St. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, in Adam all have sinned. And this punishment is for our protection. It's not against us. Because it reminds us that we were exalted from the paradise of joy because of our rebellion to God. So when a father or a mother discipline their, their son or daughter, it's for their benefit. And with this punishment, God is not destroying us. But with this, actually, God giving us salvation and eternal life. So his discipline did not intend to destroy us, but for our salvation and our benefit. How are miracles in other religions different from miracles in Christianity? You know, Moses was able to turn his stick into serpent, and the magician did it. How come? Moses did it with the power of God. Magician did it with the power of Satan. But not everything they can do. The power of Satan is limited. 
That's why the Antichrist, when he comes, as we read in the book of Revelation, he will do miracles. So, miracles is not an evidence that this person is from God. So don't be deceived. We need to be sure first, this miracle is from God before we believe it. Women do not need to conceive kids in order to fulfill their rule. But is it wrong to want to have kids but not necessarily raise them? Like, I would like to be the provider, I want to work, but not to take care of the house. Is that wrong or does this go against God's intended rules? So he's saying, I like to work, but not take care of house. So I like to have kids, but somebody else will raise them for me. I, I don't like to raise my kids. You know, there is a bond called storge, S-T-O-R-G. Storge is the blood bond between parents and their children. So, parents actually love their children even sometimes before the, the, the pregnancy happened. And with the pregnancy, actually, it it, um, it increased. And with the birth of the children, this connection will be very, very strong. So a person, this is a theoretical question, a person who wants to have kids but not to raise them, this means he will kill his paternity instinct or maternity instinct in order to be able to do this. Believe me, in, in ministry, sometimes when there is unwanted pregnancy or uh, pregnancy happened because you know, teenager pregnancy or whatever, and we offer solution to the girl that we can take the baby for adoption. Sometimes they agree. But after the birth, they refuse. It is very, very painful to give your son or daughter to somebody else to raise. And if you are going to be able to do this, then you are killing again the instinct of fatherhood or motherhood in you. And, and Definitely, this again is the will of God. This again is the will of God. Um, what about if they mean the spouse would take care of the child? Like they're saying, I. The children will not. Children needs both father and mother. And both of them, they have influence on their children. And both of them need to to nurture their children. In in case of uh, the death of one of the parents, God provides special grace for, for this child to grow. But the normal uh, atmosphere to raise healthy children should be by the role of the father and mother in this child. 
How am I confessing to God if I went to two priests and got different answers? Here are speaking about spiritual direction, not about forgiveness of sins. What do I mean? What's confession? I go, confess before God, I have lied, I have cursed, I whatever. I'm going to mention my sins. And when Abuna prays absolution over my head, and I receive the forgiveness from the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Abuna, I'm forgiven. That's confession. But when you ask him a question, that's what called spiritual direction, or we call counseling, pastoral counseling. So, for example, a person has a conflict with his son or with his daughter or with his spouse, and go to Abun and ask direction. So, yes, different priests will give you different answers, but this doesn't mean they, they are not led by the Holy Spirit. For example, if you come to me, and tell me I want to go to Florida. Maybe I, I tell you, drive. Another person will tell you, take a flight. Uh, another person will give you a, a third idea, a private jet, whatever. <laughs> so, so all these advices will get you there. But it's different. In one of His Holiness, Bob Shenouda's books, he speaks about how the devil can try to tempt us even during the, our very last hour before death. How can we prepare for a temptation that can occur during this moment? Will God allow the devil to tempt us more than we can handle? So the question here, I'm living all my life with God. Then at the last moment of my life, Satan will tempt me and I will fall. Then God will tell me, you're not going to be saved. Go to the fire or lack of fire? Actually, the answer is no. If you are able to fight the good fight all the days of your life, then even at the last moment in your life, if Satan tempted you, you will overcome through the grace of God. So don't be afraid. So the purpose of what Sayyidina Pop Shenouda was saying is not to scare you, but to tell you the persistence of the devil on fighting against us. But a person who is living the life of watchfulness all his life will be also living the life of watchfulness. And God will not allow something to steal your eternity because his desire that all will be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. And also uh, he said, um, do not fear little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Satan place in our mind that God is looking for an opportunity to make you fail, to make you go to hell. That's absolutely wrong. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. God is looking for any opportunity to send you to the heaven. You can see the thief on the cross. Remember me, O Lord, when you come in the kingdom? Okay, done. You are with me in the products. That's his desire, all to be saved. Last question, how do you differentiate between the struggle that God puts in our life because we take things for granted when they come easily? So he's saying, if I'm taking things for granted, so God may allow me to go through a difficult time to wake up, to wake me up. 
And the struggle when we hold on to things in our life because we don't see that God has something better in store for us. So the second type of struggle, I hold to something because I see that is the only good solution for me. Uh, And because of this, I'm struggling in my life. So how can I differentiate between this and that? I think spirit of discernment is a gift we receive it from the Holy Spirit when we are faithful with God. So if you put this in your prayer and ask God to guide you and to enlighten your way, believe me, prayers work. Ask and you shall receive. Beside prayer, go and seek spiritual advice. And with a godly spiritual father, you can ask him to help you to discern why you are struggling. Either because you are holding to one solution and you are refusing any other solution because you see that is what I want, or because you are taking things for granted and then God actually want to wake you up. Third thing, actually, the scripture is written for us and there are many stories or many situations similar to our situation. So you can look at the scripture and look at situations similar to the situation and see how God dealt with the people in this situation. Because the Bible, yes, is a book of salvation, but also is a book of how God deals with us, how God communicates with us. So you can find answer in your situation in Scripture. And finally, ask yourself this question. If Jesus, in my situation, what would he do? What would Jesus do? Would he give up this one solution? Or would he uh, hold fast to it? So, these four points will help you. Number one, prayer, spiritual guidance, scripture, and what would Jesus, or what would St. Mark, what would St. Anthony, what would a godly person walking in the fear of God would do in this situation? So that's a true statement. 
Okay. So my next question is, I have two questions after that. One is that, is, is that authority for the council or is that authority for like, for you as a bishop or for a buna as an individual? Second question is that when I'm talking like with the high school kids and they ask questions like, okay, so how come we can eat seafood, but we can't wear clothes that are two different threads? Why do we, so that when they highlight the inconsistencies of some of the Old Testament laws that we adhere to, like for us when we baptize different times for different genders, or, and then, you know, just inconsistencies. Would my response be appropriate if I said, well, this was the decision of like the council and, and we're bound by their decisions? Okay. There are two verses. One verse, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The other verse in Matthew 9, uh, 18, whatever you bind on earth will bound in heaven, not every rose. So these two verses are different. Forgiveness, that's about confession. But binding and losing, that's about setting rules for the church, etc. Because we believe that the Holy Spirit still working. The Holy Spirit did not stop working in the church after the, the first century, still working uh, until now in the church. Then this comes to the second question, is it a council or a personal? It is a council of the church that decide like the, the Holy Synod, but when the council decides there is a room to for, for the individual, for the bishop or the priest, to move within this decision. Let me give you uh, an example. Fasting. The church actually, the councils, determine what are the fasts of the church. But here, a priest with a person who joined the church or he is still growing spiritually, he can tell him, okay, maybe start fasting uh, 30 days or 40 days. And, okay? So he doesn't have to go to the Holy Synod in order to make a decision for how many. So here he is binding and losing. But binding and losing, I cannot give absolution to lie or absolution to swear, or absolution to steal, you know. But I can give, in, there is difference between the principle and application. Principle is fasting. Application, how to fast. Principle is, is to pray. But how many prayers you pray, you know. And the priest has certain area to move with him, but there are certain area he cannot move except to the bishop. And the bishop has a bigger area, what we call it economia, how, how to manage the church of God. And then, but all this within what the synod decides. Okay. But major, major decisions should be for the synod. It is not for the priest or the bishop. And again, we cannot 
absolve, a senate cannot absolve or allow or lose a commandment. Okay, for example, we cannot meet and say, we will allow abortion. We cannot. It's, it's a sin. This comes to the third part. Of course, the easiest answer is what you said, that is the decision of the synod. But I, I want to go and understand the Old Testament commandments. There, is, there are three types of commandments in the Old Testament. Commandments that are symbolic, commandments that are cultural, commandments that are moral. Symbolic, like circumcision. It is a symbol of baptism. Sacrifices, symbol of communion. Cultural, like when uh, the Lord said, leprosy defiles a person. Leprosy is a disease. But God won't actually to them work it to catch two birds with one. So he wants to teach people two things. Number one, he wants medically and physically to protect people from spread of leprosy among them because this can destroy the nation of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. But also he wants to, to tell them how sin is very destructive. See what leprosy actually did in the body of this person, then that's very destructive. That's why clean animals are unclean animals, etc., etc. Then the question like moral, don't murder. Honor your father and mother. But even this question, this uh, commandments, got took to a higher level in, in, in the New Covenant because now we have grace. In Old Testament there was no grace. But now we have a grace. So in Old Testament, adultery is adultery. But in the New Testament, if you look at woman to lust of terror, you committed adultery in your heart. So God took it to a higher level. Then, how can I decide which one is cultural? Like, as you said, the 40 and 80 days. How can I decide is it cultural or not? Purification of whom, etc. Two things actually here will help me. How early church understood it and practiced it, especially those who were very close to Christ. And also, how the traditional churches practiced this during the 2000 years. For example, the baptism of the children or the uh, churching of women after, you know, they give liberty. You will find in early church fathers they did not consider this as a cultural commandment. And also until 50 years ago, 50 years ago, Greek Orthodox Catholic, you know, when you go and, and Google churching of women, you will find in all, in, it just started to be negotiated after the feminist movement. But until 50 years ago, all churches applied. Then I have a history and I have interpretation of early church father to confirm to me it, it was not a culture. It is a moral commandment that God wants me to keep it this way, walking in the fear of God. And, and who decides this? 
you know, the, يعني, how we decide in the Holy Senate about divorce, abortion, etc., all these issues. We go to church fathers and church histories, and based on this, we make our decision. It's not just mm, what do you like, no, just make it. It's not, <laughs> it's not like this. Any more questions? Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.